0: Welcome back to another episode of Criminal Beauty. I'm Shayna, your host. My faithful listeners, all of you that have checked on me in the last month or so, you are so freaking appreciated. I'm fine. My family and I recently moved. As you know, moving requires you to switch utilities like TV providers, internet companies, you know, all of the things. Well, we ordered internet and they said it would be two and a half weeks until it was hooked up. Obviously, I couldn't wait that long with the podcast and the new boutique that I just busted my butt launching. They gave me the runaround for like almost two weeks. I finally got the internet set up only for the internet to be shut off and not come back on because, well, according to customer service, we would hit our bandwidth threshold. Odd and unexpected when it was only my phone connected to it most days. Anyway... Long story short we finally got the internet through another provider and it is now working fantastically i also want to throw it out there that taxes are a real bee. so that was part of the long delay on getting an episode up opening an online boutique all over again was not an easy task but if you want to check that out feel free to google shay's odyssey anyway today's episode is about a mother and her son and how their lives were taking too soon and how it took decades to find their murderer. This is the case of Stacy Falcon Dewey and her son, Jacob Dewey. October 23, 1994, and it was Stacy Falcon-Dewey's 23rd birthday. So she and her three-year-old son Jacob had taken a ride out to Stacy's mom's house as a surprise to in. Vienna, Stacy's mom. Stacy had Jacob knock on the door, and according to a story by Lewis Cam posted in the Seattle Times, it was very much a surprise to the grandmother that her daughter and grandson had shown up with Stacy's boyfriend, Rich Muska. Stacy and Jacob lived in an apartment in Renton, Washington, which was a two hour drive to Vianne's house, so that alone had called for a celebration. So, to celebrate Stacy turning 23, Vianne took Stacy and Rich to a dive bar for some drinks and a few rounds of pool while Jacob stayed with his aunt. After a while at the bar, they drove back and Stacy, Rich, and Jacob headed back to Renton. Just five days later, as a mail carrier was running a paper route, he came across two bodies. Those of 23-year-old Stacy Falcon Dewey and three-year-old Jacob Dewey. Police were informed and they responded to a location on a dead end road in Renton, just a few minutes from Stacy's apartment. The bodies were discovered laying outside Stacy's brown Buick and were described to look like they were huddled together. Both had gunshot wounds. Detectives started to arrive around 3:30 a.m. and photos were taken as they waited for the rest of the detectives to arrive on the scene. When it started to rain, they covered their bodies and half of the car with a tarp to protect any evidence that may have been left behind. The thing that struck police was the fact that, even though this was clearly a homicide, there were no signs of a motive at the time. Stacy's belongings were present, and the keys to the car were found between the seat and the driver's side door. They combed the scene for any and all evidence they could find. Their shoes, three white buttons a brown glove, and coiled up strips of packing tape lay among dozens of items scattered around the car. Some of the neighbors had said that they had heard gunshots and the sound of a woman's screams around 2.11 a.m., but they had gone back to sleep, just chalking it up to partiers. Officers found shell casings inside and outside the car. Something did, however, stick out to the detectives on the scene. Jacob's socks were clean but stacy's socks were caked in mud stacy had sustained injuries such as a gash on the head and there were bruises around her neck and arm there was also a grassy patch beside the car that had been trampled greg wilson who had arrived on the scene around 5:15 a.m. had made his own summary of what may have happened he thought that at some point the attacker bound stacy with the packing tape and somehow she had wriggled free She then had a scuffle with her attacker on the grassy patch outside the car. At that point, he believed that her attacker then grabbed her and hit her with something. She still managed to get free and get back in the driver's seat. He believes that Stacy was actually holding Jacob when the attacker shot him through the passenger side of the car before going around to the driver's side and shooting Stacy. Wilson believes that the attacker then moved their bodies and tried searching for the keys, but ended up fleeing the scene on foot, leaving both victims shot in the head. Renton had made it nearly 10 months into the year of 1994 without a single homicide, and now they were staring at the heartbreaking sight of a mother and her son who had lost their lives way too soon. The next few hours following the discovery, officials meticulously combed through the scene, tagging and bagging every piece of evidence they could find. Stacy and Jacob lived at the Benson Village Apartments, and Detective Bob had driven out to check out her apartment. When he arrived, it was empty. Not empty as in nothing was there, empty as in no one was there, and nothing caught his eye that would make him suspicious. While there, the detective did find out more about Stacy. He confirmed she did have a three year old son and that his name was Jacob, and found that Stacy worked at H.D. Hotspurs, which was a restaurant nightclub. He also learned that Stacy had been married but had divorced her husband two years earlier, and that Stacy and Jacob had lived with Stacy's boyfriend, Rich Muska, on and off. And as I'm sure you all know, that when there is a homicide, You always look at the significant other first, to rule them out before moving on. They tracked down John Dewey through his roofing job, and they found Rich Muska at his home. Both cooperated with detectives, agreeing to talk and take polygraph tests. Both of their tests came back inconclusive, but they both had alibis that detectives found believable. John Dewey had been out drinking the night before, and he went home to play pool with some buddies before eventually going to sleep. Detectives kind of kept pushing for more and all Dewey could tell them was about a local weed dealer and just said that, quote, just kind of thinking out loud, grabbing at straws, end quote. He was also quoted saying, they just keep working on me. I was telling them all I could tell them. I was devastated. The question Rich Muska and he said that Stacy had gone out with some friends at night to hang out at a local bar near her apartment. He said that he had crashed at Stacy's place that night and waited for her to come home. But she and Jacob never showed up. Muska's friends woke him with a phone call that morning and informed him that Stacy and Jacob had been killed. He said that the first thing that came to his mind was a car wreck, and he left and made a beeline home. Stacy's mother was at work when she got the news that her daughter and her grandson had been murdered. Diane worked at Donna's Espresso and Cafe and it was morning rush when the South Bend police chief walked in. He found Vianne and told her that he needed to speak to her alone. He then informed her that Stacy and Jacob had been murdered the night before. For Vianne, this took some time to set in. The police chief then repeated himself, and Vianne felt her world stop instantly. Apparently, the police chief was really blunt in the way he told her. Vianne then heard herself screaming and realized she was pretty upset at the way she was told that her daughter and grandson were dead. She ran out of the door of the cafe and then just kept running, and then eventually she stopped and just collapsed on the ground. The police had ruled out John Dewey and Rich Muska, but during their investigation, they found that Stacy's phone records indicated that she had received a call from a man named Scott Holm just hours before her and Jacob were killed. Fortunately for police, 27-year-old Scott Holm volunteered to speak to the police. He told them that he was at home with his wife during the time that Stacy and her son were murdered. He admitted to cheating on his wife with Stacy after meeting her while she waited on his table a few months back. Bob thought that he had a solid alibi, but his partner wasn't so confident. Apparently, rumor had it that Scott had tipped Stacy a hundred dollars the night they met and then showered her with gifts. Why does this make him sus? Well, because Scott only worked at a grocery store and detailed cars on the side. It made them wonder how much he could really afford on that type of income, so they suspected that he was dealing marijuana. They checked out his alibi and it seemed to be good. Things went sideways when another body was found. The victim had been choked and stabbed repeatedly, and then wrapped in blankets and left in a bed of an abandoned pickup truck in Tacoma. Plot twist, the victim was Scott Holm. It didn't take them long to find the person who killed Scott. Detective visited Scott's paternal twin brother at his apartment and asked him when he had last seen his brother. Mark, Scott's brother, said that the last time he had seen Scott was the day before, just before he went to collect on a debt. Mark and Scott had just started up a car detailing detailing business and one of Scott's weightlifting friends had subwoofers installed in his car and scott was going to collect a thousand dollars from him mark told police that the guy's name was vince but that he didn't know vince's last name mark gave police a description of vince said he was about six foot two with a boxers build detectives went to the gym that scott worked at and the employees there gave them vince's last name fields they learned that scott had tried to call vince three times on the day he was murdered They also discovered that Scott's credit card had racked up about $2,000 in charges since the day they had found Scott's body and employees at the furniture outlets and other retail stores had verified Vince as the person who charged that card. Vince was arrested on November 17th of 1994. Vince denied killing Scott and claimed that Scott had never shown up for their planned meeting. After Vince was in custody, they spoke to his girlfriend. Scott was found on the 8th of November and Vince's girlfriend said that she hadn't been home most of the day that day, but said that when she did get home, she found blood in the apartment. But she said that Vince had told her that he had been in a tussle with Scott. That's when they got rid of the bloodstained furniture and Vince bought new furniture using Scott's credit card. Police did find blood in the apartment, along with cocaine, methamphetamines, and some other drug paraphernalia and he was charged with first-degree murder, theft, and two felony drug counts. You're probably wondering why I'm even covering some of the details of Scott Holmes' murder, and I'm about to explain it. After Fields was arrested and was sitting in jail awaiting trial, Detective Wilson paid him a visit in King County Jail. Wilson wanted to know what Fields knew about Scott's relationship with Stacy, because, as mentioned before, Scott and Stacy had an on-and-off relationship. A little less than two months before Fields was to stand trial, he and his lawyers came up with a new defense strategy. This strategy included Fields confessing to murdering Scott, but that he did it in self-defense. They wanted Fields to claim that he and Scott were in business together, and Scott was supplying him with large amounts of marijuana to sell. In short, Fields said that Scott had called him and told him that a detective had questioned him about Stacy's death, and Scott had told him that Stacy was a woman he had been having an affair with. Fields claimed that Scott told him that Stacy had said that if Scott didn't leave his wife, that she would tell her about the affair. According to a piece in the Seattle News, Fields' lawyer said, quote, Holm told Mr. Fields that he viewed the woman as a threat and that he did what he had to do to protect himself, end quote. Fields said that this conversation made him fear for his life and said that Scott showed up at his apartment demanding his cut of the drug money and pulled a gun on him. Fields then struggled with Scott and a gun was dropped and discharged round. Fields grabbed a knife and this is when Fields said that he repeatedly stabbed Scott. This statement may have given life back to Stacy's case, but Williams wasn't sure that he believed it. Fields being a drug dealer didn't exactly make a trustworthy character witness, not to mention he had federal narcotic convictions. It wouldn't be a surprise if Fields had made this story up to help himself into a plea deal, and Wilson believed that he very well could have concocted the story. Either way, Wilson needed to follow up on this to see if it gave any insight into Stacy and Jacob's case. As you can imagine, Vianne was doing all she could to stay busy and keep her mind off the loss of her daughter and grandson, but... At night, she would lay awake just going over all the things, wondering if someone knew more than they were saying. Did someone actually know who did it? She was in a state of mind that she suspected everyone. She took it upon herself to start her own investigation. She contacted an old friend and police sergeant in the neighboring county, asking questions and seeing what he could do to get information on the case. She eventually had to seek help and was put on medication for a couple of things like sleep. Nightmare was happening and months passed and her conversations with police were almost non-existent. Close to the one year anniversary of Stacey and Jacob's murders, she was contacted by a reporter and was asked to do an interview and talk about the toll that the murders had taken on her family. I did watch bits and pieces of this interview and you can see her heartbreaking all over again. I really could not imagine the pain that she went through to lose not only her daughter but her grandson too, all in one fell swoop selfishly taken from the lies that they had ahead of them. I'll link the video in the show notes so you can all see it for yourself. When it came to the story that Fields had told Wilson when Wilson had paid him a visit, Fields stuck to it and it paid off for him. Instead of being charged with first degree murder, he was charged with murder in the second degree. And this in turn had Wilson re-examining Scott as a possible suspect in the Dewey murders. If you remember correctly, Wilson had questioned Scott just a few days after the murders, and Scott seemed to have a solid alibi, but he also felt that Scott had seemed nervous. Look, I can see that, but I would be nervous too if the woman I was having an affair with was murdered and was I was being questioned about it because now his wife was probably going to find out about the affair, which would then cause problems in his marriage. Anyway. Wilson went to the interview Fields again. Fields slipped up this time. During the second interview with Fields, Wilson had noticed that Fields didn't include the fact that Scott had pulled a gun on him like he had in the original statement. So now, Wilson was wondering if Fields had just made up the story, so he requested that Fields have a polygraph done. But Fields agreed, and he passed. One of Stacy's friends said it seemed like Scott liked having Stacy around as his... Showpiece, but that Scott and Stacy had broken up. She also said that Stacy had paged Scott the night she was murdered out of curiosity, and Scott had called her back a few hours later, which was the call that showed up on Stacy's phone records. The friend did say that Stacy didn't give any indication that she was going to meet up with Scott, though. During the initial investigation, surveillance footage was pulled from a convenience store where it showed that Stacy had visited the night that she and Jacob were murdered and Wilson wondered if the man that was seen with her could have been Scott. Furthermore, after Wilson spoke to Scott's brother, Mark, again, which only confirmed that Mark was just as in the dark about the murders as he was, Wilson came across a headline in the Seattle Times from a reporter who caught wind of Fields' claims that read, Your old slaying could be resolved. The article, in short, just described the Renton Police Department was considering the possibility that Scott could have been the one to kill Stacy and Jacob. The article ended with Wilson's phone number in case anyone had any tips on the case. Unfortunately, the Dewey murders were pushed to the back burner in 1995 when another double homicide landed in the Renton Police lap. Wilson was tacked on to the case and they had to work the more recent cases. To add to that, a little over a year after that, anything that kept the Dewey case alive had disappeared when the two detectives leading it left the Renton Police Department. 2010 rolled around and nothing new had come of the case. Diane was still having trouble sleeping. Everything would remind her of Stacy and Jacob. She still wondered if DNA science could unmask the horrible person that took a piece of her away forever. She would even drive to the Renton Police Department, and she said that most of the time she would just cry in her car in the parking lot, and then she would go home. She had made so many phone calls in regards to the case, but they all ended the same way, with her in tears and incredibly frustrated. Due to it being an active investigation, they couldn't give her any details on the case other than what she had made public or the police had made public. In that same year, Vianne had called the prosecutor's office once more, and the lady that answered the phone told her that the cold case unit had lost funding and had disbanded. So, now that was one more thing that Vianne had to ask questions about. How was the case going to be solved if no one was working on it? Was it just going to be put in some box and put on a shelf to collect dust? What was going to happen with the case? The woman that she spoke to implied that the case was closed and said that Vianne should go online and search for Stacy's name for an old article about a suspect in the case. It was the article that had said that they had suspected Scott Holmes had murdered Stacy and Jacob. Bian was angry. No one had called her and told her anything about it being Scott Holmes. She once again called the prosecutor's office and spoke to someone. The man that she had spoken to had told her that Fields had said that Scott had confessed that Scott had killed Stacy and Jacob. Of course, Vianne didn't believe it at all. Later, Vianne was proved right because she found that investigators had pulled their focus away from Scott based on cold, hard science. Between July of 2001 and September of 2002, a break was made. In July of 2001, a tip came in from an inmate it was a man facing multiple felony charges and he wanted to tell authorities what he had heard about the double homicide in written seven years earlier of course stacy and jacob's case hadn't been looked at in years due to the original detective that were assigned to the dewey case leaving two years after the murders they assigned detective rick cross to check out the inmates tip. After familiarizing himself with the details of the case by talking to Wilson and Jeff Byrd, the original deputy prosecutor assigned the case, Cross went in to speak to the man that called in the tip. Wilson and Byrd accompanied him. The informant told them that a few years prior, a meth dealer by the name of Charles Casey Sharp had made a joke about the last time someone had snitched on him. The inmate said that Sharp had claimed that he'd shot and dumped a person on the road. Of course, Sharp never gave a name, but he s- did mention that he had also shot her child. According to the inmate, he had been working with Stacy at a restaurant where all of them, including Stacy, had been dealing drugs, and apparently the rumors were that Stacy had tipped off police about Sharp, and that had led to his arrest and jail time. So Cross followed up on that and checked the records, and lo and behold, he found Casey Sharp, and he had pled guilty to a felony drug possession in 1994, and had served time for it. Now, it was time to get to business. Cross went over all the evidence logged for Stacy and Jacob's case to see if there were any items that might hold genetic material. He found something, too. Cross submitted the glove and the coiled strips of packing tape they had found at the scene and the medical swabs taken during Stacy's autopsy to the state crime lab to have a DNA analysis done. Fun fact, four months prior to cross sending the evidence, the state patrol crime lab started the DNA evidence analysis that eventually would help to crack another case that was overseen by Byrd. That case was the case of the Green River Killer. Cross had to wait more than a year for results. But on September 5th of 2002, he received the call that the results were in. The forensic scientist, Jody Sass, found semen from Stacy's oral swab. With this semen, she had created a DNA profile for an unknown suspect. Once the lab ran it through the database of DNA profiles for felonies in Washington, they had a match. And it wasn't Casey Sharp. to keep up with the latest trends, looking for customizable items, just like to shop for clothes or accessories, go check out Shay's Odyssey. We strive for customer happiness and offer a variety of different styles along with clothes for women, men, and children. We also offer glass cans and bundles that come with a hundred dollars worth of product at a discount. So much more is coming too and we would love for you to be a part of it. So go ahead and check us out at www.shaysodyssey.com or join us on Facebook at Shays Odyssey, where it's your style, your journey. The DNA pinged on a man named Jerome Frank Jones. After years of chasing leads and going down rabbit holes, detectives were stunned Jerome had a rap sheet a mile long, too. From an early age, Jerome was known on the streets where he lived in California. It included charges for drugs and violence. He grew up in Compton and ran with the Crips gang during the crack cocaine explosion of the 1980s. In 1986, when Jerome, or Rome Dog... Was 16, he earned his first felony conviction for attempted robbery, and by the age of 18, he was serving time in a California prison for carjacking and shooting a man. About three years later, and being paroled, he robbed a produce truck at gunpoint and was sent back to prison for another year. He was arrested in Washington for the first time in 1993 after police chased him down after he bolted from a traffic stop in August. While he was on the run, he had thrown out a blue bandana that is associated with the gang he was affiliated with and 12 grams of crack cocaine. He went to jail for two months and was released after Christmas in 1993. After they did a background check on Jerome is when they learned that he and an accomplice had been convicted of the 1995 killing of Gregory Hebden in California. Cross then went over the police records and it showed that the murder occurred between Jerome's run-in with the law in Washington, including an incident that happened less than three weeks after Stacy and Jacob were murdered. He was sentenced to 56 years in prison and had only served about four years when his DNA was matched to the swabs collected during Stacy's autopsy. In November of 2002, Cross boarded the flight to California to find out what Jerome's explanation was. Jerome agreed to talk to Cross and on the advice of Bird, Cross kept the questions vague, not mentioning Jerome's DNA had been found in Stacy's mouth or that he was a suspect in a double homicide. Jerome did confirm that he did live in the Kent area during 94-95 and said that his girlfriend and the mother of his child had also lived in Seattle and had kept in touch with her. Jerome also stated that he remembered the club HD Hotspurs. Need I remind you that that club was Stacy's place of employment at the time of her murder. Cross showed a photo of Vince Fields to Jerome and he said that he didn't know Fields. Cross then slid a photo of Stacey across the table and asked if Jerome knew her. This is where Jerome's demeanor changed. He stared at the photo for a few seconds with his mouth open and then quickly denied knowing her. Cross asked again, and Jerome again denied and claimed, quote, I don't do white bitches, end quote, but then refused to talk anymore and asked that the guard take him back to his cell. Cross and Bird knew they had him, with Jerome's persistent denial that he had ever even met her and the fact that they had DNA matched to Jerome that was found on Stacy was a big hit. So, back to Washington, Cross went to tie up loose ends. He collected DNA from John Dewey, Rich Muska, and Scott Holm to rule out the possibility of them having anything to do with it. Cross then went and visited Fields at the Stafford Creek Correction Center. The testimony that Fields had given initially backfired on him and when an inmate testified at the court hearing for Field's appeal stating that Field had told him that he had killed Scott while robbing him and that it wasn't because he was in fear for his life or because it was self-defense. Cross also learned that another homicide in King County had suspected Jerome's one-time girlfriend. The shooting had been done with the same caliber gun used in the murder of Stacy and Jacob. Cross then requested that the shell casing be compared to see if it was the same gun used in both cases. Cross also submitted more evidence along with the shell casings from the written crime scene. Although most of these tests didn't pop anything up, fingernail clippings from Stacy's right hand had more DNA that linked to Jerome. So the next step was to confirm that Jerome had been at the Kenton Ridge Apartments. He spoke to managers and current and former residents of the apartment complex and several of them identified seeing Jerome from a photo that Cross had shown them. They said that Jerome had been living with an older woman and two kids in the complex in 1994. A former resident even told them that he had seen Stacy hanging out with Jerome and some of his acquaintances and other residents that helped with security at the apartment complex said that Jerome had carried a handgun in his waistband. The Kenton Ridge Apartments is where Jacob's babysitter lived, and a manager of the complex said that Jerome hung out with a man named Clyde. And Clyde's apartment had a clear view of where Stacy would park to pick up Jacob from the babysitter. Now that Cross had the DNA evidence, Jerome's denial of ever meeting Stacy and several witnesses who stated that they had seen Jerome in the apartment complex shortly before Stacy and Jacob were killed. Plus, he had Jerome committing a murder a few months later with several similarities. A victim who was bound at the wrists and then shot. By April 2004, Cross was ready to submit the case to the prosecutors. Unfortunately, Bird requested that forensic scientists do one more thing and this request would stall the case for several more years. This request was asking that the crime scene be reconstructed. He wanted this to help demonstrate how the killings unfolded the holdup was that the forensic scientist assigned to reconstruct the crime scene went on vacation and then upon her return abruptly retired then cross transferred from the detective's division to the patrol sometime in late 2004 and the reconstruction still hadn't been done the case was once again sitting on a shelf and guys it gets worse. An email came to Bird two and a half years later from Kim Duddy, a forensic scientist, asking if the crime scene still needed to be reconstructed. Which it did, but there was another issue. There had been someone else assigned to that case. I feel like they do a lot of reassignment. Anyway, the case was now up to the prosecutor, James Coney. Bird said that he would forward the email to Kone, but even then it took Kim another year and a half before she could get someone to speak to her about the case. Finally, in July of 2008, she was able to speak to Prosecutor Donna Wise. Kim wanted to do an additional forensics on Stacy's car, saying that they could collect blood to be tested and analyzed that couldn't be analyzed in 1994. This task would be impossible because Stacy's car had been given back to the family and Stacy's uncle had asked an employee to get rid of it years earlier. The more I read on this case, the more frustrated I got. It seriously irked me that it seemed like no one cared to get this case solved and closed. To me, it seemed that they had everything they needed, but every other person was requesting more and more things to be done. I mean, they had so much that linked back to Jerome. They had his his DNA, not only from the swabs, but on her fingernail clippings. (sighs) When they found out the car was gone and a few months had passed, the case went cold again. And to top it all off, when Kim sent an email to Donna with a list of questions and suggestions, Donna's reply was that she was sorry to report that most of the cold case unit had been lost due to budget cuts and that she had been reassigned to another unit. Y'all, when I tell you that this case had me fuming, mm, that is probably the understatement of the year. There was a bit of a silver lining to it, though, because Donna had also said that Bird had reclaimed the Falcon-Dewey investigation. By this point, it had been, what, five years since Beard had requested the crime scene reconstruction? The list of fallouts is incredible. It had not only been shelved, but reopened, reassigned twice, and then returned to Beard, but had not gone anywhere since Beard had requested that the crime scene be reconstructed. Oh, you all want to know something super infuriating? Yeah. In the years that had passed since Jerome's DNA was connected to Stacy's body, Stacy's mother VN hadn't even been told. Hell, she hadn't heard from Renton detectives in years. This had VN digging for answers once again, right alongside her sister Frankie. Vianne would hear stuff or see something and it would. she would take it to Frankie and Frankie would research it and dig for answers. In 2017, Frankie died of heart failure, leaving Vianne without her only ally and finding the answers to her daughter and grandson's murders. After a while, Vianne had basically secluded herself and lost hope of ever getting answers. Vianne was living with her older brother, ken and her older sister lily and they told seattle times that there were times that vn would disappear into a fifth wheel that was near the family's home for weeks at a time lily was quoted saying she was a basket case and then in march of 2019 ken passed along a message from a reporter with seattle times vn returned the phone call and agreed to meet with them they talked about who Stacy was as a person and how Stacy spent a lot of time in her late teens looking for her estranged father and how she found love briefly with her ex husband, John. The reporter also asked her questions about what she knew about the case. Vianne had never heard of Charles Casey Sharp or Jerome Jones. The reporter asked because they had recently started investigating the cold cases and came across Stacy and Jacob's case. And it showed that they had found and matched DNA revealing a suspect in the case. He contacted Vianne through Ken wondering if she even knew about this since it had been 16 years at this point since they found a DNA match. Bian and her siblings were just finding out about all this through the reporter as he cited information about Jerome from case documents and court records. Vianne had the reporter write down Jerome's name. Cross and Beard were also interviewed about the case and both said that they were remorseful about the fact that Vian wasn't aware that there was a suspect in a DNA match. Beard retired in May of 2018 and left the case to one of his colleagues, Jessica Berliner. In December of 2021, investigators learned that semen had been detected on the jacket of Jacob Dewey at the time of his murder. This was stated in an affidavit of the Renton Police Detective Tracy Jarrett. That semen was then also linked to Jerome. Up until this point, Jerome hadn't even been charged. Jerome was charged in the murders of Stacy Falcon Dewey and Jacob Dewey on February 15th of 2022. Jerome is 51 and serving 56 years sentence already for another murder he and his accomplice committed in California and he would have been up for parole in 2030. I could not find whether or not the crime scene had ever been reconstructed. The court documents state that Jerome had bound Stacy, beat her, orally raped her, and likely shot her child to death before killing her. Jerome's charges are two counts of aggravated murder. If Jerome is convicted, he will be serving a life sentence without the possibility of parole. Until next time, stay safe, friends.